name is Helen and you're watching the Watch It Baptist Church YouTube channel. Um, I am speaking to you today from my back garden here on Exmoor, so you may hear many things. Um, one of them may be howling. Don't worry, it's not the Exmoor beast, it's my neighbour's dogs. Um, so this uh, is part seven of an eight-part series exploring the book of James. Uh, and the whole series has been put together using the round table method where a group of us get together study each passage, come together and talk about what we've learned. I've found the round table experience mind expanding, challenging and really fun. And I'd like to thank my fellow round tablers, tablers for in, their input in improving my knowledge of James and preparing me to give me this talk. Um, if you'd like to take part in the next series of round tables discussions, then do get in touch with Mike and come along and join in. We're going to be exploring James 4, 13 to 5, 6 today. But before we read the passage together, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of discipleship. Thank you that you bring other believers alongside us to help understand your word and that you send your Holy Spirit to inspire and equip us. As we look at this passage together, would you please bring out to each of us that which you would have us understand better. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, so I better put my glasses on if I'm going to read this passage. Hang on, bear with me a second. Here we go. It says, so, starting with James 4.13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who, does, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And then moving on to chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you paled, pay, failed to pay the workmen who moved, mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. So some nice light-hearted reading there for us. Well, at first glance, these seem like two very disparate passages with not much to link them, apart from being written by the same man. They're even in two separate chapters. Surely they don't have anything in common, do they? Well, I think they do. In James 4, 13 to 17, James is speaking about a group of merchants who are all making who are making all kinds of plans and boasting about how they're going to travel here, there and everywhere, making as much money as they can, and they never give a thought to God's plans for their lives. They have become arrogant and self-reliant. They don't think they need God, and they can make enough money to solve any problems they may have. Then in chapter 5, 1-6, we see James warning the rich oppressors that the wealth they put their faith in is transient and won't save them from God's impending judgment. 
Their money has caused them to become arrogant and self-reliant, unfeeling and callous, believing that they can get away with murder, which, by the way, may literally be what James is talking about. The wealthy landowners of his day had put the grain harvest under lock and key, leaving the local people who had worked those fields and harvest that grain to starve because the landowners knew that they would make more money selling that grain for export. Commentators generally agree that James was not speaking directly to the wealthy when he spoke those words, which the Bible framers entitled as a warning to rich oppressors. But to those who were oppressed, he was writing to a people living in a very different society to ours, one where social mobility was almost unheard of, where if you were born a labourer, you would probably die a labourer. He was writing to give them hope and the strength to keep going, to assure them they were on the side of righteousness and would one day see their oppressors brought to justice. He had no thought that the wealthy would hear his words or that they would form part of the biblical canon, which we, can, which we would be reading 2,000 years later. Nevertheless, there is much we can learn from this warning he gives. The UK, for all its current financial woes, is still the world's sixth largest economy and our welfare state provides a safety net for the poorest of our citizens. This, coupled with the endless bombardment of advertising telling us bigger houses, better cars, new clothes and the latest gadgets will bring us happiness, can lead us down a dangerous road where we can believe we could be masters of our own destiny. We can forget our need for God, if we ever saw it in the first place, believing that money would solve all our problems if only we could get enough of it. If we succeed in accumulating enough wealth, we can become proud, arrogant, boastful. We are self-made and self-reliant, we say. The trouble is, James is right. Wealth is fleeting. Money doesn't, does turn to dust. We cannot be safely self-reliant for one very good reason. As the message translation of James 4, 13 to 15 says, you don't know the first thing about tomorrow. You are nothing but a wisp of fog, catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. There are echoes of Ecclesiastes there, as you may remember from Mike's earlier series, which you could check out on this channel. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. How many loo rolls did you buy in December 2019? Why do I ask? Well, because however many it was, I bet come March 2020, it didn't feel like enough. Do you ever watch those grand design programmes? where some poor hapless couple are being filmed in August 2019 explaining how they've budgeted for a nine-month build and that they have a meticulous schedule that, that means they will absolutely, definitely be in by summer 2020. I always feel such pity for their blind optimism. They have no way to imagine what's coming. I usually end up shouting at the TV. I often wonder if that's how God views the plans we make without consulting him. Does he end up shouting at our TV, longing for us to listen? How much better would it be for us if we did? What then is James saying? Do the two passages have different messages? Again, I would say not. In both, com in, in both cases, commentators are almost unanimous in saying James is not arguing against wealth itself. It is not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to want to earn more or have nice clothes, houses and cars. The problem is in forgetting that money is a tool for us to use to do God's will, not a tool to self-reliance or an end in itself. We need to remember that God is sovereign of our sovereigns. 
Most of us have a tendency to keep our money and God very separate. But if we think back to Mike's earlier talk on chapter 2 of James, when we discussed faith and deeds, we can see that talking to God and listening to him regarding how, when and in which ways he wants us to earn and spend the money he gives us is no more than another example of faith in action. And those actions can be every bit as important as the decision the merchants made in James's day to lock away their grain. If they had talked to God about what to do with their wealth, he would have shown them they needed to act with compassion and love, unlock those doors, give the starving people around them the food they needed and trust that God would provide for their future needs. So assuming we are praying for guidance, how can we be sure we are using our money in the way God wants, even if we aren't hearing his voice for a specific need? Well, we can try to use it in ways that reflect God's heart of love and compassion on the world, remembering that those are things he feels for us too. I'm not suggesting you give all your possessions to the poor and move into a shed, but thinking carefully about how you spend your money to buy the things you need is a good start, because even this decision can leave you locking those grain doors, grain store doors. Take clothes, for example. In our culture, they've become almost disposable, with an expectation, particularly on the young, that outfits won't be repeated. This means, for most of us, buying them as cheaply as we can. But if we are buying cheap, then someone, someone somewhere isn't being paid what they're worth to make them, and they may be <clears throat> made by people locked into dangerous factories for hours on end, or even by children forced to work without pay, and that's before we begin to think about the environmental implications of disposable clothing. It doesn't sound like using our money to show God's love and compassion, even if we are buying those clothes as gifts, or even donations for refugees. What if, instead, we organise clothes swaps within our communities, or buy good quality second-hand clothes from any one of the online sites that make it easier, use charity shops, save up and buy ethically produced fair trade clothes that will last and refuse to participate in the disposable clothesmith by wearing them time and time again. Think of the witness our money would be then, of a different way of doing things, a kinder, more compassionate way, and clothes are just a start. I have always fervently agreed with Bono when he asserts the God I believe in isn't short of cash, mister, in the U2 song, Bullet the Blue Sky, but I do wonder if he might be short of believers willing to trust him with their money. Just think of the way the world would look if we didn't use our money to accumulate more of it, but rather to listen to the one who gives us everything we have as to how he would have us use it. Once we exercise our faith by giving God control of our finances, we can let go of our fears for the future and our need to control our own destiny and rest in perfect assurance that our faithful God will provide all our needs and have the privilege of knowing he will use us to work out his purposes in others' lives too. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, thank you for every provision you make for us, be it friends, fellowship, homes, livelihoods or finance. Help us to trust you with and for those provisions and allow you to use them for your kingdom. Amen. So, as is Mike's tradition, I have three questions to end my talk on. Um, the first one, uh, in the first one, I'm thinking about the merchants that James is talking to in James 4, the ones who are off on all sorts of money-making trips and talking about how much money they're going to rake in and how great they are. 
I want us to think about what we say and the effect that has on us. So the first question is, <clears throat> what does the way we talk say about what matters to us? In the second question, I'm thinking about this dichotomy of a world that we have, where half of us have homes filled with so much stuff we might need storage units, <clears throat> and the other half are starving without any food. So in this world of plenty and starvation, can we recognise when we have enough? Can we remember times when we didn't have enough, but God provided for us anyway? And question three is, <clears throat> how can we encourage one another to use our resources in line with God's desires? Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to my talk. I, um, I, I hope you got something from it. Uh, next week is the eighth in the series, the final one, and uh, Mike will be with you for that one. Bye-bye.